This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we already know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So, in this series, we will explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. The 2013 movie, The Conjuring, starts us off with the Warrens, who are sitting with three teenagers, and they're speaking about a doll. That, of course, is the theme of a completely separate movie. Then we see the Warrens in some sort of auditorium, speaking to a class about a case that they have studied. Then we go to the Perrin family, as they are moving into their newly purchased 18th century farmhouse with a lot of acreage in rural Rhode Island. Almost immediately, the movie shows us how the paranormal activity begins. From the beginning, their family dog wants nothing to do with the house, refusing to come inside. One of the daughters finds the dog dead, unfortunately, the next morning. But the children begin playing, and one of the children finds the famous music box with the red and white striped umbrella that has a mirror on the other side. One of the girls encourages the mother to look into that mirror. There is a spiral on the mirror that spins and sort of a cartoonish clown that pops up and down as she looks inside the mirror. We see the mother's eyes in the mirror as she's kind of looking behind her. It appears that she sees some sort of shadowy figure just as her daughter pops out and there's a jump scare for her mom. And her mother, of course, giggles it off. So the camera expertly shoots the family doing various things, like sleeping in their beds. So it does make you feel as though a spirit is floating amongst the family. They hear strange noises and the father goes to investigate in the basement. So as the family continues to live their life and play games such as hide and seek, we begin to see things like cabinet doors opening by themselves or the dark figure of someone watching the children. The activity becomes so intense and scary, one daughter sleepwalking and acting in a strange way. The family decides to contact Ed and Lorraine Warren, who, when they arrive at the property, Lorraine immediately feels that something is very wrong. Ed goes through the house to try to debunk the usual noises, you know, floorboards that creak, foundations that settle, loose windows, and so on. And yet many of the things the Perrin family describe match perfectly with the symptoms of one of the last cases that they worked. 
Lorraine explains that a dark energy has attached itself to the family and that they'd be happy to try to help. What happens next? Well, those of us that have seen it know, and the ones who haven't should see it if you like scary movies. It is really good. So this movie is based on the very real Perrin family who experienced a terrifying haunting in their home in Rhode Island in 1971. The contents of the movie were not only based on the files that Ed and Lorraine Warren kept about the house, but also the book trilogy, quote, House of Darkness, House of Light, written by Andrea Perrin, the eldest daughter. The family consists of parents Roger and Carolyn, followed by daughters Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. After Roger and Carolyn married, they lived in Rhode Island and had their first child, Andrea. After that, they lived in Connecticut, where the rest of the girls were born. The parents decided to move to Harrisville, Rhode Island, and bought a farmhouse during the winter of 1970 that came with 200 acres of land. Now, the population of this town, according to the 2010 census, determined it to be about 1,605 people, and you can bet it was far less than that in 1970. This area was first settled around 1662. John Smith, the John Smith, and members of the Salisbury family were part of the first settlers of this area. It is located in the northwestern corner of Rhode Island, quite close to the borders of Massachusetts and Connecticut. As time went on, people built mills around the stream, namely Harris Mills, thus getting its name. So the house that Roger and Carolyn bought was a 14-room farmhouse that needed some work. It was, and still is, nestled along a narrow, winding road called Round Top Road. As you drive down the driveway, the house appears amongst the trees. The house itself was built in 1736, and the locals referred to it as the Old Arnold Estate, but was also known as the Dexter Richardson House and the Old Brook Farm. Eight generations of one family had reportedly lived there, and many of them died strange and horrific deaths at that farm. Some say Mrs. John Arnold hung herself in the farm's barn, but that has since been proven untrue. However, the town's former public records book allegedly states that there were, quote, two suicides by hanging, one suicide by poison, the rape and murder of 11-year-old Prudence Arnold by a farmhand, two drownings, four men who froze to death on the property, and other losses of life. Now, historians have found that Prudence was indeed murdered in 1849, but it was in a home in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, and she was not raped. Her brother did commit suicide by consuming poison, just not at the farmhouse, and he was 57 years old when he did so. There was one man by the name of Jarvis Smith who did die from exposure on the property in 1901. So then, just what part of this house's history is true? There really was a Bathsheba, Bathsheba Thayer, born in 1812. 
this of course being the main ghost tormenting the family in the movie. Her parents were Ephraim Thayer and Hannah Taft, though Hannah was not Ephraim's first wife, whose name was Bathsheba. So he named his daughter after his first wife, who had died in her mid-30s. Ephraim and his first wife did have a son, Nathan, who was 26 years old by the time Bathsheba was born. Then the information gets a little gray, but he had three more children with a possible second wife, and then he and Hannah went on to have Bathsheba together. Now, Bathsheba married pretty late in life for the time period that she lived in, waiting until she was in her early 30s, practically an old maid. She married a man named Judson Herman. They began having children quickly, four in all. Unfortunately, three of them died while they were quite young. They were Julia, Edward, and George. There is no record anywhere that states one of her babies had been killed due to her putting a kneading needle through the base of the baby's skull. There was no sacrifice to the devil, and there was absolutely no, quote, community scandal regarding her and the treatment of any of her children who had passed. In the time that I had to research, I couldn't find what each of them died from, but considering the times, it could have been any number of things. Babies and children dying were an unfortunate but somewhat common occurrence during those times. Their one surviving child was a son named Herbert, born in 1851 when she was 39 years old. There's a blog that I'll put a link to in the podcast notes or the description box on the YouTube channel that goes into great detail about how ridiculous the story of Bathsheba got in the movie as well as the story the Perrin family wove about her. She was not a witch. She married late, according to the Times. That's it. So that brings us back to the house and the land. According to this blog, the land and properties were separated by each family that owned the land in the area. The family's names were Sherman, Arnold, Taft, Mowry, Germain, Aldrich, and others. Most of these people were related to each other in some form or fashion, and all were deeply Christian. Now, Bathsheba also never lived in that house. Yes, you heard me correctly. There is no evidence of her ever living in that house. Her property was actually southeast of the Arnold estate. Carolyn Perrin and Lorraine Warren claimed a lot of things that simply were not true. Some of the people that the women said died on the property actually were documented as dying elsewhere entirely. And remember Jarvis Smith? He seems to be the only one that was documented as dying on that property, but he didn't die in the house. He fell asleep in a barn on the property and froze to death. It is said that he had had too much to drink, and well, that's that. The only truth to any deaths in the house would have been family members from the multiple generations that lived in the house and died there from natural causes, but again, nothing nefarious. 
So now that you know the backstory, let's get into the parents. They bought the house in 1970, moved in during the winter of 1971. Roger and Carolyn's oldest daughter, Andrea, stated in a phone interview that she saw her first full-body apparition within moments of the very day they moved into that house when she was 12 years old. She stated that she can't explain the feeling she got from witnessing that and the difference between feeling a natural cold and a supernatural cold is terrifying. The children began to notice what they perceived as a young boy walking around the house. They blamed missing or moved toys on him. Carolyn herself spoke about hearing disembodied voices and sounds of like broom bristles sweeping along the kitchen floor. Once in a while, she would enter the kitchen and investigate only to find there to be a collected small pile of dirt on the kitchen floor. The girl spoke about a, quote, man with a crooked smile that would stand in the corner of the room they might be playing in and watch them. They called this particular spirit Manny. Then the family states they experienced their beds levitating a few inches off of the floor. Chairs would go sliding across the floor. Doors would slam shut with no human intervention, and even pictures would just fall off the walls. So this is when Carolyn said she took it upon herself to research the house's history to see what she could find. And this also is where the story takes a turn because this is when she came up with all of these macabre stories about all of the violent deaths that happened in the house. The family went on to say the spirits in the house went from benign to scary. They described, quote, an unseen force, unquote, that would yank on their legs and hair while they slept, according to a story written by the Occult Museum. One supposedly began whispering in eight-year-old Cindy's ear over and over that there were, quote, dead soldiers buried in the walls. Unquote. This, of course, not being true because the walls were not even thick enough to contain a human body. The family even hinted that the ghosts were molesting the girls. Now, supposedly it got so bad that Carolyn began saying that the ghost of Bathsheba was trying to possess her. After a few short years, the family contacted the famous paranormal couple, Ed and Lorraine Warren, for help. They already were pretty well known in the field, having famously worked other cases, the most famous being the Amityville House. Side note, I can do a separate podcast on Lorraine and Ed Warren if you'd like, but there's entirely too much for this one podcast. So Ed and Lorraine visited the home where they held a seance and later reported that Carolyn spoke to them in a voice that was not her own and then watched her get physically thrown out of the room. After that meeting, the Warrens said that they would most certainly be happy to help the family. So they returned and began their usual ritual of first trying to cleanse the house except the paranormal activity intensified. 
Ed and Lorraine sort of centered their ideas behind the spirit being that of Bathsheba after Carolyn told Lorraine her stories. The family told her that the entity's head was snapped at the neck and it looked like a desiccated hornet's nest, really with vacant eyes and thin lips and very yellow jagged teeth when there were any features on her face at all. Lorraine stated that Bathsheba must have taken her murder weapon, the knitting needle, into the afterlife with her and had used it during an attack on Carolyn. Think of it as Carolyn believing that Bathsheba was seeing her as the competition, if you will, as the mistress of the house. So the attacks continued, and the Warrens made frequent visits to the house, particularly in 1974, and then urged the family to leave the house, only they couldn't, because they simply couldn't afford to. The parents were finally forced to ask the Warrens to leave the house and never come back. Finally, in 1980, a decade after they bought the house, they were financially able to move away. They settled down in Waleska, Georgia, and attempted to regain some semblance of a normal life. The family continued to discuss what happened to them, and there is tons of information and interviews with the daughters online if you'd like to Google it. Lorraine was interviewed for USA Today, where she said, quote, The things that went on there were just so incredibly frightening. It still affects me to talk about it today, unquote. A few years after the family left, a couple, Jerry and Norma Sutcliffe, bought the property and lived there until recently. The article I read stated the couple experienced absolutely no paranormal activity outside of normal and explainable noises in a very old home. There is no law in Rhode Island, or at least in the 80s, where the seller had to disclose any information like that, so Jerry and Norma were supposedly unaware of the Perrin family's troubles. When the couple eventually sold it and left, it was then purchased by Corey and Jennifer Heinzen in June of 2019, and they do say that they've experienced paranormal activity, but as it were, they themselves are paranormal investigators. So what was the ultimate fate of Bathsheba anyway? She died in 1885 as a 72-year-old elderly woman of what they then called paralysis, but today historians along with doctors concur that she had a stroke that had immobilized her. She was buried in the now Harrisville Cemetery next to her husband who had already passed leaving everything to her son and one grandson. She had not had time to update it for another grandson. She literally had never lived or worked on the Arnold estate, nor was she associated with the Arnold family in any way other than perhaps in passing. But due to these stories and now the movie, her gravestone has been vandalized, and that really needs to stop immediately. Thanks for listening.